In a world ruled by emotion, where reason is abandoned, God is forsaken, and history forgotten, two brave men will attempt to do the unthinkable. Use their brains. Armed with ancient wisdom, they will bring light into our modern world. This is the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. I'm your host, Evan, and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, Daniel. Hey, everybody. They say that the only certain things in life are death and taxes. Ayn Rand might have disagreed, but for most of us, taxation is something we are subjected to and will be for the rest of our lives. Today, we'll talk about taxation, both now and in the past. In today's episode, we're going to cover the definition of taxation and all the types arguments for and against taxation in general, taxation in ancient Greece and Rome, taxation in medieval Europe, and in the modern world, a breakdown of the average American's tax load and how much money he or she gives to each major expenditure, how much would we be willing to give to each expenditure, and how much in total. Is voluntary taxation viable or are people too selfish? Is tax avoidance ever justified? Maybe. We'll see. And what is the future of taxation? Is there a limit? Starting off, we'll define a taxation and all the types of taxation. So taxes are a charge usually of money imposed by authority on persons or property for public purposes. In modern times, taxes are almost always collected by governments. So what differentiates taxes from dues or fees? Uh, Taxes are mandatory, and there's no escaping them if you're engaging in a taxable activity. If you belong to some charitable organization or an HOA, you may get charged dues or fees, but membership in these is voluntary. The difference between taxation and extortion, um, libertarians may think they're the same. Is nothing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The difference is the legality of the action itself. So extortion... Or taxation is, in theory, for public use in modern day, and extortion is for private use. But even besides that, extortion is to obtain from a person by force, intimidation, or undue or illegal power. So taxation is a legal obligation, while extortion is illegal. Ah, now, that's an important distinction, and I never really thought about it. I mean, people there are obviously people in certain parts of the political spectrum who would say that, oh, yeah, it's definitely extortion. But there is a a valid argument there that if you're taking it as an individual or even like as a corporation or something, taking it from somebody, and it is illegal, uh, versus if people in a government, duly elected officials are doing it, it's a little different. A little different, you know? But, I mean, taxes exist in all forms of government, not not just democracy. Exactly. They've always been here. They probably will always be here. And, yeah, every form of government. You're right. So let's talk about those types of taxes. First is uh, everybody's favorite, income taxes. Am I right? Am I right? We all love them. Levied on employed individuals. That's what income taxes are. Uh, They can be progressive, where the tax rate goes up as income goes up, or regressive. The poor may pay more than the rich. Or just a flat tax, my personal favorite, where everyone just pays the same percentage. Not the same amount, same percentage. A sales tax uh, is levied on all or most purchases, uh, also known as an exchange of money for goods or services. So anything where you buy it or you sell it, 
taxes are involved in a sales tax. Payroll taxes. And now these are taken out of an employee's paycheck uh, to pay for things like Social Security and Medicare. If you look at your pay stub, you will see payroll taxes taken out if you are legally employed and not employed under the table or something like that. Essentially, personal income taxes, uh, but it goes to specific programs and is withheld from checks instead of given at tax time. So that's a payroll tax. It's taken out and it's not part of what you will pay come tax time or tax season. Corporate income taxes. These are personal income taxes, sort of, but uh, on businesses instead of individuals. Then there's property taxes. You pay based on the square footage of your property. In places uh, that base it on a bird's eye area, houses tend to be skinny and tall, like in Charleston, South Carolina. So you technically uh, don't have the same square footage looking down on it. I mean, you do, but it's if it's a taller house, I guess it's sort of a legal loophole in right. that way, which is kind of funny. Is Are there any other places like that? I'm sure. Uh, I don't know of them. Hmm, that's interesting. That's though. the reason they are that way in Charleston, though. Ah. Then there's tariffs. So when you charge foreign goods uh, to be sold in domestic markets, it can be protectionist, where you try to protect domestic industries from lower-cost foreign competitors, or simply uh, it's used as a way of collecting revenue. Then there's excise taxes, which are on specific goods and services before the consumer gets them. So costs are passed on directly to the consumer. They're passed on indirectly, right? And it's kind of like the the consumers don't see it, but it's like added on by the producer. Yeah, I'm, yeah. So, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, it, it would be a direct if you like actually saw it. Yeah. Indirect is, yeah, prices have to go up in order to compensate. Right. Yeah, in America, this tax is done on tobacco, alcohol, fuel, etc., and then there's estate and inheritance taxes, uh, which take a cut of people's inheritance upon a rich person's death. Usually those are only applied if you give a, a certain amount. It has to be above a certain amount. So you have to be uber wealthy or above like a certain limit. Yeah, it's probably a few hundred thousand or a million or something. Mm-hmm. And then capital gains taxes, which are on profits made from investing. You buy Dogecoin, it goes up, you sell it, you got to pay capital gains. Same thing on the stock market, things like that. Right, so then there's the less conventional forms of taxes in our current world. There's the wealth tax, currently not done in America. Uh, It's done in many countries, like Switzerland has it. Um, I don't know what others do, but a handful. It's taking from a person's total wealth, not just their income or capital gains. A wealth tax of 2% on someone who is worth $1 billion, this includes all their assets, Mm -hmm. would generate $20 trillion annually. A 20, 20 million, I'm sorry. Uh, Elizabeth Warren proposed it recently and is currently being considered. It would charge a 2% tax on net worths between $50 million and $1 billion and an extra 1% tax on net worths exceeding $1 billion. And if you try to renounce your U.S. citizenship to get out of paying these taxes, you get a 40% exit tax on your wealth. Oh, my goodness. That's she, ridiculous. They, they were smart to come up with that, though. They, they were, yeah. Because, you know, the U.S. is only one of two countries in the world that charges uh, income taxes on people if you leave the country. Yeah, yeah. So the IRS will come after you, if you even if you live abroad. I mean, that's like holding someone hostage, holding someone prisoner. Yeah, it's really unusual that it's considered in most countries if you if you work in another country, it's that country's money to collect you know but if you work in the u.s the u.s collects it but not not for us Mm. 
So that's a way because most people who renounce their citizenship in the U.S. are avoiding taxes. So that's a proposed bill. I don't. I think it's going through committee or something. It's the. Yeah, it probably won't make it through this generation, but you can expect it probably in the next generation that that will become standard practice. Yeah, it's the Ultra Millionaire Tax Act of 2021. That's the name of it. But anyways, uh, moving forward on that, uh, there's also the poll tax, which is there's a few ways to do it, but originally means you just charge every person a certain quantity just for existing. It's a way of just collecting revenue on the spot. But in the more modern sense, it's in order to vote. So you have to pay this poll tax. Literally, you're at the polls, you pay a tax to vote. And so that's why it was considered racist back in the day, because the taxes, tax money couldn't, you know, African-Americans couldn't come up with it. That's part of the reason, yeah. But it, if they didn't have the loophole that I'm about to mention, then it would just be against the poor. Oh, but they, yeah. they had the grandfather clause, which meant, oh, if, you know, you have to pay this poll tax. Unless your grandfather voted, then then you don't oh, have to pay. I see. So that's how they got poor whites to be able to vote. Yes. That's messed up. Uh, there's a whole, I forget which one, but there's a constitutional amendment that bans poll taxes, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, so it's not practiced much anymore in the world since it fun- functions as a regressive tax. If you pay a fixed amount, then it's a larger portion of the poor man's resources than the rich man's. And there's also inflation, which is not usually considered a tax, but we thought we should include it because it serves as a quasi-tax by reducing the buying power of the money people have. If you print a bunch of money, as modern governments do, or reduce the amount of gold or silver in coinage, as ancient governments did, you are forcing people to pay more money for the same thing. And that's uh, that's kind of been the topic that's been cruising around social media, there's kind of a, I guess it was a screenshot from an article. I want to say it's from the New York Times, but don't quote me on that, where it was talking about a plus side to inflation is higher wages, as if that was a good thing, as if it wasn't just relative to goods and services. I mean, I have a hard time believing that the author of that paper or that article was really that stupid or thought well, I can believe that they thought that their audience was that stupid, but I have a hard time believing that that person writing it was that stupid to believe that inflation, meaning higher wages, was a good thing. I mean, yeah, most I, people are economically illiterate, even the people who write on it. So it's it's sad, but if you think about it, and historically, inflation has been worse for the poor than the rich. Of course, it because the the rich people and those who know a lot know to just invest the money in stuff that will make them more money than they're going to lose to inflation. And that's kind of an argument for inflation in that it forces people to invest and that stimulates the economy because you have to invest to not lose money over time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because inflation generally goes up. It doesn't go down. And it's really bad for the poor because they have to eat, you know. Rich people can afford to eat. They may, because of inflation, have to decrease their lifestyle a little bit, but it's not that big of a burden on them. It's a big burden on the on the poor. Yeah, and it just discourages saving as well. Yes. So here are some arguments for and against taxation in general. Most philosophical systems affirm the moral right of governments to tax their citizens. The differentiation between them is uh, what types of taxes should be used and at what rates? That's normally the argument there. So here are some arguments for taxation for your consideration. There's the social contract theory. Uh, that's kind of pioneered by Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau, and it was this idea that 
the government exists with the consent of the governed, and taxes are levied with the consent of the governed. And so there is a sort of contract uh, written or kind of implied between the people and their representatives. And the people say, all right, we'll let you be in charge so long as you treat us fairly. And they say, thank you for letting us be in charge. We will treat you fairly. And that's how it's supposed to work. Now, does it always work like that? Generally, no. But that is the idea behind the social contract theory and that taxation is just part of that that makes the system work. So that was what a very, very simplified version of their arguments. Then it's uh, the price we pay for civilization. That's a, a big thing that's thrown around, especially in libertarian circles. They use that kind of like as a derogatory term, usually with the um, SpongeBob bird meme, you know, mm. really making fun of how people say that because they think that civilization can exist without taxes. Uh, and to that, I would say, show me a civilization that existed without taxes. I'll wait. I mean, it's it's just a it's a sad inevitability, but it's it's an inevitability. Nonetheless, uh, how else will we fund governments? And nobody really has ever produced a successful model for funding a government that doesn't include taxation. I mean, they have to get money somehow, you know, and it has to come from private citizens who work and who produce. And then the government's job is to redistribute that money to different services, uh, Sometimes it's very limited services, like just protecting the well-being of the people. Sometimes it's extremely massive uh, undertakings like building highways or providing Medicare to all people. So there's different arguments about how big and how small the government's role should be. But at the end of the day, it is, you know, taxation is is what fuels uh, everything that the government does, they have to have that revenue unless you have a completely voluntary society, which, again, is basically fantasy. There are very few examples, and if there are examples, they are very, very small. On the large scale, taxes must exist. And then there's the whole idea of might makes right, which so maybe you're that kind of guy. Maybe you think, hey, taxation isn't bad. If, if I've got the power, if I've got the guns, the muscles, and uh, I've got the willpower— why not just enforce the law that I see fit and um, tax people and take Plunder. their money? Well, what? Plunder. Plunder, yeah. You know, there that was a, an idea that dominated ancient societies. That's what they did. I mean, they didn't really care too much about the whole moral aspect of taxation. It was just something that existed. If you needed money for a war, you just took it from the people. And so that that is a philosophy, an argument for taxation. And the last one we'll leave you with is Jesus said to give to Caesar what was Caesar's. And if Jesus said it, for a lot of people, that's good enough for them. So maybe that's what you believe. Maybe you think, hey, if Jesus is saying, got to give to Caesar what's Caesar's, maybe that's just what we got to do. Maybe that's the will of God. Render to Washington what is Washington's. Yes. What about rendering to Sleepy Joe with Sleepy Joe's. <laughs> right now he is Washington, so. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so then there are, of course, opponents uh, of the very existence of taxation, including the libertarians, as we mentioned earlier, and the leftist anarchists. Libertarians invoke the non-aggression principle to assert that taxation is theft. That's their rallying cry. 
they say that everyone has an absolute right to their own property and the fruit of their own labor, including money. And there is something to be said for that. The man cannot exist without, without property, without tools, without being free to own things because he can't survive just with his, with his own body. You know, he has to be able to have property. He has, he has a right to it. Yeah, and produce property and produce things that he thinks of that will help him survive because, you know, uh, the, the species that are out there that we compete with every day, they don't need any of that. They are born with everything they need to survive. But man is not. He has to go out and find it and create it and invent it and make it. So there is something to be said for that argument that man, man's existence depends on his ability to own property. But many conservatives agree with the premise of taxation, but just want taxes lowered. So that's a constant kind of battle on the right. And right. Uh, those are the arguments for and against. All right. So now we can go on to practical benefits of taxation. As we said, taxes are necessary to fund government and all the things government does, which the vast majority of people enjoy at least something that the government does, whether it's just the maintenance of justice or roads or welfare programs, you know, people usually like something the government offers them. My roads. My roads. So taxes are an alternative to inflation as a way to fund the government as opposed to just, oh, we need money. Like we need money. So we're just going to print. <laughs> we're just yeah. going to print a few trillion dollars and that will solve it. Yeah, so, which is what we've been doing for a very long time. And we can see what, what well, that's we, done. We tax and print. Yes, yeah, so we're doing and a borrow. double and borrow. damage, yeah. <laughs> also, it taxes can reduce economic inequality if that's something that you're striving to accomplish. And it also, you know, funds public expenses. Uh, it can it can reduce bad behavior uh such as the vice taxes imposed on smoking and drinking. You can tax carbon emissions or driving an SUV if you want to discourage that activity. Now, Europe does this a lot. The ga gas is really expensive in Europe because they put so much taxes on it to encourage people to use public transit. Do they do this with other vices, or is it just fuel because they're green? They're going for well, a green agenda. I think it's probably mostly for fuel because drinking and smoking are more prevalent in Europe. Yes, in general, especially true. smoking. Everyone smokes in France. Are we in America kind of alone and unique in that we have vice taxes like that, like such steep relatively steep taxes on things like cigarettes and booze? I don't know. I'd have to look into it. Uh, we'd have to look into it. Maybe we'll do an episode on that because I would I would theorize, I'm just going to put it out there, that we probably are I, I more, bet they, more unique. I bet they do as a, as a way to collect money. Yeah. Maybe drinking in some places that have alcoholism, like uh, Russia or something. I don't know. Uh, maybe. You make a lot of money taxing uh, <laughs> liquor over there in, in Russia. Yep, sad. And lastly, for the practical benefits, increased taxes mean more and better public services. So you get what you pay for. In theory. Yeah, I mean, usually in low-tax states, like the roads will be terrible. But in high-tax states, you'll have immaculate roads. Really? That's just one example. I'm, yeah. South Carolina roads are crappy, notoriously. I, I've heard that uh, South Dakota has very bad roads, and I've heard that they have two seasons winter and road construction. Oh. <laughs> That's just what I've heard. I guess you know more about South Dakota than me. Uh, I just heard that from a friend who was passing through. 
So the practical disadvantages of taxation, let's talk about those, delays economic growth and technological development. If you tax too much, sometimes that will disincentivize uh, using the money that ends up going to taxes. You would ordinarily have it, and you could invest it in uh, new technology or funding research because that thing, you know, those things aren't cheap. And if they that money is taken away, isn't free to use because it's being used for taxes, that can disincentivize uh, technological advancement because there's no money being poured into research. Uh, it, taxation disincentivizes uh, working and uh, owning a business because there's so many taxes that go along with that. As we mentioned earlier, payroll tax. You know, if you can work under the table, you might make more money than if you had to get a legitimate job and have the payroll taxes come out. So it is something to think about, and people make that wager and say, do I want option A, option B? You know, what's what's in it for me? And then owning a business is another level. There's so much legal paperwork and tax paperwork that goes along with that. It just keeps a lot of people from starting a business. Uh, it makes people move to lower tax countries, or even within a country, it makes them move to lower tax states. That happens a lot in the U.S., uh, thus reducing the home countries or the home state's revenue. Complicated tax schemes produce a lot of deadweight loss, costs and money for the accountants to sort things out. The IRS has to track down evaders and find their mistakes. There's a whole bureaucracy that goes into all of that, and that costs money. Those people have to be paid. And so the more complicated your tax system is, the more likely it is you're going to just spend money trying to enforce the rules that you've made. Uh, government also is generally less productive than the private sector. That's a huge understatement. Uh, so for more taxes, that means that it would be uh, likely to make the economy worse off than if it hadn't been taxed more. So if there's less bureaucracy, there's less inefficiency, you're going to have a stronger economy. Uh, higher taxes can make people uh, resent the government. That's also an understatement. Uh, people really don't like having their property taken away. Uh, and it's a, it's a burden, especially to the non-rich. If you're not rich enough to pay the taxes, taxation is going to be a bit of a burden on you. Now let's dive into taxation way back in the day in ancient Greece and Rome. In ancient Greece, in times of crisis, usually during war, which was happening a lot back then, a one-time tax on the ultra-wealthy was imposed. Also, the ultra-wealthy were expected and often legally obligated to endow public works or military equipment like boats. Boats were used a lot back in the day. We don't really think of that as a military expenditure, but a lot of warfare was fought uh, on the sea. It's worth noting that you could refuse to pay the tax if a wealthier person hadn't been taxed yet. That's interesting. Tell me a little bit about that. Maybe you know something more than I do on that. Well, from what I saw, it was it was just kind of a way to keep corruption from happening. If you were if tax man comes to your door, he's like, "Come on, give me the money, give me your sheep, or whatever." Yeah, you could say, "But Joe down the street hasn't paid, and he's worth ten times what I what I'm worth," and then they had to go. If, if that was true, they'd have to go collect taxes from him before they collect from you. Oh. So it was kind of a, a way to prevent corruption in that, you know, nobody could get out of it if they were rich enough. 
I kind of like that. Do you think we should impose that here? I mean, I kind of like the idea of shirking it off and saying, hey, that guy hasn't paid. Why should I have to pay? It, it wouldn't work <laughs> when you have millions of taxpayers. But if it's a community where there's only a few ultra wealthy, then it would work. I guess so. Okay. Like Jeff, Jeff Bezos only paid 0% in taxes. So why are you charging me, you know? Exactly. There you go. I think that's, I think there might be something there for us right there. <laughs> uh, so like you said, that was a good policy for stopping tax evasion and corruption. Uh, maritime cities often impose tariffs on incoming goods. This was a way to raise money and not to prevent uh, competition. Free trade was the norm. Taxes were collected from random things like herds and slaves, produce, etc. Some uh, cities owned mines, which uh, funded a lot of public expenses. This is comparable to Saudi Arabia today, which owns a lot of the oil extraction sites and uh, as a result does not collect income taxes. Now, I, I did see that actually they collect a 2.5% tax on everyone who's a citizen, but it's, oh. it is 0% on foreigners living there. Wow. And still 2% or 25 is very small. Very small. Wow. Imagine that. Now, that's probably why a lot of people go to Saudi Arabia and right. in that area because it, that, that's very uh, – that, that's attractive to people. Don't drink there, but, you know, otherwise you might be okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, an often forgotten form of state revenue was the uh, subjugation of dependent groups, such as the Helots outside of Sparta. Uh, they were a quasi-slave group that uh, produced the basic necessities for the Spartans, and this allowed Spartans to focus more of their time on military training. So, yeah, I guess the, uh, the Helots obviously were a huge part of Sparta success without them, Spartans wouldn't have been who they were. Yeah, they would have had to be farmers and you know, merchants and all that. But exactly. Yep. So now let's look at ancient Rome. Conquests, both in the Republic and in the Empire, uh, they brought a lot of money and goods and slaves back to Rome. But those were a one-off event and could not be done consistently. Lots of revenue came from the provinces, who were required to pay a certain percentage of their production back to Rome. From the late Republic onwards, taxes were usually collected by tax collection contractors. Hmm. This brought up a certain uh, capacity for corruption because they promised to pay Rome a certain amount, but then they would collect more on top of that so that they would make a profit. And, Sneaky. And how much they would collect on top was really up to them and how much they could get. Was it also a matter of how much they thought they could get away with? Exactly. I mean, you can't just take, you know, the whole province's wealth. Yeah. But you're also going to take more than like the 5 or 10% that you are required to take because yeah. you want it to be worth your time. You know, you need to make a little money suits. So, so, you know, you'll, you'll make money yourself. So it was a side hustle for them, sort of. No, it was their whole job. Oh, okay, yeah. So within their job of going around and collecting taxes, they would also collect more. So they would just if them. if the Romans required 5% of someone, they might just get, you know, 7%, 10%, 15, mm. you know, however much they thought they'd get away with. Wow. So as you can imagine, they were highly unpopular and corrupt. <laughs> they even make mentions in I believe all four gospels of the Bible. Jesus compared tax collectors also known as publicans to he compared them to prostitutes. He said, if someone doesn't listen to the rebuke of the church, treat him like a tax collector, which means if he doesn't, if he doesn't even listen to the church criticizing him, then just he's nobody to you. Like, ugh, spit wow. in his face. Like, he's nobody. Beat his ass. Well, okay, maybe not that, that far. 
So there were also client states who were not formally a part of Rome, but they paid tribute in, in the form of wealth or soldiers to Rome. Italians were exempt from some or all taxes for much of Roman history. Like non-citizen Italians? No, just all, all Italians were citizen. Well, I think there was a deal after the Punic Wars or something that they didn't oh. have to pay taxes. Interesting. So, Italians got mad later on and emperor imposed taxes on them, and they were like, what? Hmm. What? Oh, see, I'm kind of thinking maybe too too much in the Roman past because there was a time when, you know, Italian and, and citizen weren't necessarily the same thing, and there was a lot of drama between Roman citizens and non-citizen Italians. But right, I yeah. guess that was in an era where they had already got citizenship. I think the Punic Wars kind of and the aftermath with uh, Sola and all that and Marius – I think that's what brought an end to uh, Roman differentiation from Italians. I see, I see. Yeah. Um, So inflation was bad at some points in Roman history. Emperors would produce coins. They would just say, okay, can I have all the coins back? I'll give them back to you. But they would have each coin have less gold or silver in it. And there's, it's amazing. It started out at 90-something percent, and at some points it went down to like 10% of precious metals in the coins. Oh, geez. But in their defense, they didn't know anything about economics, so they, they didn't really know any better. They didn't know how it would hurt the system. Yeah, they, they had no clue that it would cause hyperinflation. And what about taxation in medieval Europe? In times when church and state were more closely aligned, a tithe or a percentage of one's earnings paid to the local church or minister Uh, It could be considered a tax, if you think about it, Uh, usually 10%. In the 10th century, laws were passed in England to make non-payment of tithes illegal. So you better support the church or they're going to come and get you. Taxes weren't always paid in coins or cash, uh, let alone using checks or online transfers like we do today. Oftentimes, taxes would be collected in the form of cattle, land, sheep, iron, or other goods produced by the peasant folk, the artisans, blacksmiths, etc. So really, whatever you had on hand, they would take it. Across the medieval Christian world, taxes were often imposed on landowners, but by the 13th century, many people were becoming rich, very rich, from trade alone. So laws had to be updated. For example, King Edward I of England imposed a tax on exported sacks of wool in 1275. It was explicitly said, uh, sacks of wool, gotta tax them. The idea of taxing movable property also came about during this time, which meant that royal officials had to appraise property like uh, large vehicles, not in the sense of the modern day, but, you know, large wagons or something or or ships or boats, things like that. And uh, these appraisers were often bribed by the rich to give low appraisals so they wouldn't have to fork over so much tax. Uh, That's that goes without saying. I mean, obviously that was going to happen. Taxes were raised and lowered depending on political circumstances, just like in the modern day. For example, at the beginning of the 14th century, the average Swedish peasant would pay only about 2% of the value of their farm to the king. By the end of the decade, political and military turmoil demanded a large increase to about 20%. This was uh, usually paid in silver or butter, literally. Like it gave translations like this amount of silver equals this amount of butter. So they would just fork over the butter to uh, to whoever needed the uh, the king, I guess. And that must have been hard on those peasants, you know, 2% versus uh, one out of every five pieces of butter they make. Yeah, really. Yeah, you're, you're talking about a, a, a factor of 10. I mean, know, they're increase. probably already scraping by and they need to take 20%. Messed yeah, up. and that happened over the course of about 
50 years, but still, it's, it's really incredible. Uh, most tax revenue back then funded military spending since there were so many wars going on at the time in Europe. But obviously, there was a lot of corruption, and not everyone paid their share. And the money wasn't always used efficiently. For example, peasants in England grew frustrated that the government wouldn't protect them from French raiding parties. So even while they were t- you know, taking their tithes, taking their percentage of the land, the poor farmers couldn't defend themselves against just bands of raiders. All right, so what are taxes like in the modern world? Excluding the Civil War era in America when a wartime income tax was imposed just to fund the war, the federal government was funded through tariffs and excise taxes alone. And this happened uh, until 1913 when the 16th Amendment was passed, which made direct income taxes legal in the U.S. And was the final nail in the coffin of the republic. (laughs) No, just kidding. That might have been the 19th Amendment. Okay, come on. (laughs) (laughs) We don't want to get banned here. All right. We're we're just joshing around. Yeah, yeah. We support women. Yes. It's just, it's amazing that all the government expenditures were funded just by tariffs and excise taxes. It is impressive. Now, do you think that's a testament to how efficient the government was, or was it, is it more of a testament to how little we were actually doing? Like, we, you know, we weren't a huge superpower then. And so, is that just, does that just show how kind of simple and easygoing our country was? I leading guess. Leading up to World War One. I? I guess. Because if you compare it to 2020, only 4.5% of all of our taxes collected were excise taxes and tariffs combined. Wow. So either we were spending less or um, they just collected a lot more in tariffs and excise taxes. I'm not sure. That might have been it. Yep. Uh, so in fiscal year 2020, 47% of federal revenue for the U.S. government was income taxes, so about half. 38% was payroll taxes, 28% of which was Social Security. Six percent were from corporate income taxes, two and a half percent excise taxes, two percent tariffs, and four and a half percent other. Generally, the more developed a country is, the more it is taxed, both percentage-wise and total. A few dozen countries don't have a corporate income tax, almost all of which are poor. Same for income tax. Again, uh, almost all of those countries are poor, but there are a few tax havens around the world. Like in the Caribbean, uh, Switzerland is considered a tax haven. And there's also uh, well, there's also some that don't have sales tax. But mm-hmm. again, there's lots of countries in Africa that don't really have a centralized taxation system. So Is that because they don't really have a centralized government? Yeah, yeah. It really is. <laughs> yeah. They don't they don't have a really a way to standardize taxation because everyone's everywhere and it's hard to appraise everything and Yeah, and a lot I guess there's there's turmoil. Yeah, turmoil. They probably just go around and say, okay, you got to give me like a thousand sheep right now. (laughs) I don't know. Or whatever they have over there. Most of them don't have a standardized national tax collection services. So a breakdown of the average American's tax load. Now, this is original research that we did on our own. And by we, we mean Evan did all this. (laughs) I put it in a spreadsheet. I was going to be modest, but sure. Uh but he did a great job. So so listen up. This is going to be a lot of number crunching, but it's it's eye-opening, truly eye-opening to see all these numbers laid out in front of you. All right. So all the values I'm about to say are for fiscal year 2020, which uh, if you know anything about finance with the government, it's done the year before. So it was signed in 2019. Uh, it was signed by President Trump. So we cannot blame President Biden for this. 
but COVID was a factor in the budget. We used the Congressional Budget Office statistics. In total, we collected $3.4 trillion in taxes, yet spent $6.6 trillion in expenditures. <laughs> we almost doubled. Yeah, we almost. doubled the money. Just about. For every dollar collected in taxes, $1.89 was spent. Medicare cost $917 billion, and Medicaid cost $458 billion. Now, as far as I know, those aren't funded by payroll taxes. So they come, like, directly from... Oh, yeah, from they, taxes? They, you... Just other taxes, like income taxes. Unlike Social Security, that that's most of Social Security comes from payroll taxes. Oh, just okay. Fun fact. But, I mean, they do take those out of your check, though. They do, but it's, it's but, like, set aside for Social Security. The other ones are taken out of the general budget. Oh, I see, I see. Okay. Okay, so for non-mandatory spending, which is less than half of the budget, by the way, uh, non-defense spending was $914 billion, and defense spending was $714 billion. We paid $345 billion in net interest on our national debt. That's just paying the people for – it's not even paying off the debt. It's paying off the interest on the debt. The interest on the debt that we have accrued over the past – 100 years, I guess. Most of it's been in the past since Reagan, but yeah. Yes, that's true. The Social Security deficit was $125 billion, which means, as I said, uh, Social Security is a big part of payroll taxes. That means that $125 billion more was sent out in Social Security than was collected in payroll taxes for Social Security. The 2020 deficit was just over $3 trillion. That's just for 2020. With a national GDP of $21.4 trillion, taxes for 2020 alone were about 16% of GDP, and spending was 30.2% of the GDP. And with a national debt, as of recently, of about $28.5 trillion, debt is 133% of our GDP. Now, it doesn't take a genius in mathematics to understand that those numbers don't really add up to anything good. So if you really think about that, we are almost $30 trillion in debt. That's an unimaginably large number. But then think about something a little bit smaller. 133% of our gross domestic product right there is our debt. So we owe more than we're worth. And that's a bad position to be in if you didn't know. (laughs) That's a very bad position to be in. It's depressing. This is the part Daniel said you'd cry about. Uh, I'm already crying. I need a tissue. (laughs) Go ahead. Please go ahead. Just go ahead. Get it over with. (laughs) We also calculated what would have to be done to balance the budget. Just for one year, not have any surplus. We would have to increase overall tax revenue by 89%, so almost double taxes in total, or cut spending by 47%. However, many of these programs are considered essential, and they're classified as mandatory in the federal budget. Uh, So if you didn't touch Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, retirement, veterans, or interest on the national debt. Now, let me ask. So that all of that you just mentioned is mandatory. Yeah, and a lot more. Okay. So, So if you didn't touch all those things, you would have to cut spending on everything else by 84% in order to balance the budget. That includes the military. Mm. So you'd have to have 16% of the military that you have now. Yes. In order just to balance the budget? Yeah, not even have a surplus and pay off our debt. It's just to break even. Ooh. That's if you don't touch those big programs, which, I mean, 
let's be real, you're going to have to touch those programs if you want to be serious about the debt because they're such a huge part of our spending. Yes, but of course people will jump up on both sides of the aisle and say, no, you can't touch this yeah. program. This is a you know, a sacred cow. It's political suicide if you even want to talk about decreasing those. So yes. Nobody's going to do it. Yeah, which is why the Libertarian Party never gets any ground is because that's one of the things, one of the many things that they talk about. It's that cutting the debt and nobody actually wants to do the hard work of cutting it out. Yeah, because it would be very unpopular. People like spending and they like low taxes. So it's yeah. <laughs> politically impossible to fix it almost. So how does this break down when you talk about individual tax load? Because that's what you care about as the listener. You care about oh, how does all of these big numbers, how does that apply to me and my job and what I owe? So let's get down into that. For every citizen, this includes the elderly, children, and the unemployed. The average tax load, just for just to, to break even, to pay for what we were going to spend in 2020, uh, is $10,300. That's for every single American, correct? Yes. Although about 8% of that is paid by corporations or foreigners. If we were to increase taxes until we had a balanced budget, that average tax value would increase to 19500 per American. Per American citizen, yep. So then let's go even further and just talk about the taxpayers. For every taxpayer, roughly 45% of American citizens, the average tax load is $20,900 per a, year. Per year, just to break even. And with a balanced budget, it would be an astounding $39,700 per person, per taxpayer, I'm sorry, per year, just to break even at this That's rate. about the uh, like average income, isn't it? That is average income. That is all, within a a few hundred dollars of being the average income in the United States. Yeah, unreal. We estimated that a single person making $65,000 a year would pay 8,500 in taxes, 13% of his total income to the federal government. With a balanced budget, this would be $16,000 or 24.6% of his total income. The uh, the reason this is different from the previous statistic about taxpayers is that the lower like the lower your income, the lower percentage you pay. In fact, about half of you know people who have a job end up not paying anything in federal taxes. Mm -hmm. It's a little less than half. It's the famous Romney forty-seven percent thing. Yeah, he so was right, but it was a dumb thing to say. Yeah. So uh, this last statistic is basically what we're saying is that a person in twenty twenty making sixty-five thousand dollars a year paid eight thousand five hundred dollars in taxes to the federal government. That was my estimate, yeah. Wow. Based on tax rates per uh, bracket. And that's not even including, you know, state or local no, uh, taxes. Not. That's just what they paid to the federal government. Yeah, all these statistics are only for national government. Yeah. So now let's talk about what would, what would we be willing to give to each expenditure if that was an option. This is the fun part. Yeah. And how much would we give in total? Also, based on our own numbers, we just divvied out percentages to all these programs and had fun. Yeah, so how much how much were we were we saying that we were going to spend? You know, I just said uh each of us gets $10,000 and we get to we have to spend it we have to give it to the tax man, but we can decide what it's spent on. So all of these figures are based on what percentage of the budget we would give to each item in relation to how much it actually received in the fiscal year 2020. So we're going to compare what we gave. Yes. What we would give to what was 
what percentage it actually was in the budget. So for me, uh, I slashed spending for COVID-related things like the PPP and the pandemic-related unemployment uh, benefits and also student loans. I gave slightly less to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. I increased spending for food stamps, or SNAP, retirement benefits, veterans affairs, transportation, notably infrastructure, the sciences, and the military. So why did you uh, give more money to SNAP? You know, I'm not a libertarian. I'm, I think there's some room for helping the poor. And I think I'm actually a pretty big fan of food stamps because you're, you're not taking over the private sector. You're letting it do its thing with pricing. So you're not distorting it, but you're giving people who the government deems need it, that you're giving them money to pay for something that is necessary for life, which is food. An interesting take. Yeah. Um, I would say that I kind of oppose that because of the abuse. Perhaps. Uh, that is pretty rampant, I think, in that in that program. Maybe. But it's kind of like a voucher system almost, like, you know. I guess it is like that. And you said um, that you slash the COVID and PPP uh, unemployment benefits. So why did you do that? Well, it's it's a big debate currently between, uh, you know, the right and the left. You know, with, when it comes to this pandemic coming to, you know, it's dwindling away. We hope. We hope. We'll see. But, you know, it's dwindling, dwindling away and all these companies have for, uh, they're, they're hiring. Yes. So the right says, well, get rid of these unemployment benefits because it's like no wonder they're choosing to not work because yeah. they're making more sitting at home than working these minimum wage jobs. Whereas the left says, well, you should just be raising wages because the problem isn't a shortage of labor. It's a shortage of uh, wages. That's, I've been seeing that all over the place. And I, I actually agree a little bit with the left and a little oh, bit with no. the right. <gasps> you know, I'm not, yeah. I'm not just a straight up conservative or libertarian. I, I try to think about things for their face value. I think they probably, these big corporations probably should pay more. You know, McDonald's probably owes their employees more than the federal minimum wage. Because Possibly. Because they, they can pay it. Not owe, but they should. They should do it. And maybe then, you know, the ice cream machine won't be broke so often and <laughs> they, the people won't sound miserable to be there. All right, we'll leave that at that. So what about me? What did I do? I slash spending for Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, student loans and health, and goodness gracious, I love doing it. I gave slightly less to unemployment and community development because we don't need to develop any communities at all. Oh, geez. <laughs> no, we do, but we need to do it voluntarily. Uh, I increased spending for uh, retirement transportation, veterans affairs, international affairs, the sciences, and defense. And uh, let me say, the military would be very happy with me and my performance there, uh, and under my presidency also, because uh, when looking at the spreadsheet, you can clearly see that the defense budget uh, increased by over 150 <laughs> percent uh, if everybody was like me. So if, if every American distributed their tax money, their $10,000, let's say, the way I distributed it, you would see a 150 percent increase in uh, defense spending. So maybe don't emulate me exactly, you know. But how much does that end up be, being, Daniel, uh, in defense spending? Uh, oh, it ends up being a very costly $1.8 trillion <laughs> annually. And now most of that, I'll, I'll tell you what it is. 
most of that was probably because at the end of it, I gave so little. I was so stingy that I had a lot left over. And so I just kind of threw it to the things that I thought were legitimate functions of government, which would be military. And if I could have thrown some money at a border wall, I would have. Uh, however, thinking back on it, I would probably scale back those numbers and apply it to the debt, to pay off the debt, which you did. You added how much? Oh, I see it right here. I wrote it down, 14%. 14% of my money would go to paying off the debt, yes. And I think I had 5%, and I didn't realize that at first, that that number was so low. Looking at it again, I think if I could redo it, I would probably give a little more because I think that's very important to pay off the debt. And so that might have affected the numbers. But as it stands right now with, with what I have put into the spreadsheet and what we calculated, yeah, big money go into defense spending, let me tell you. So is voluntary taxation viable or are people too selfish? Is tax avoidance ever justified? Evan, I'll just put that question to you. What do you think? I don't think voluntary taxation is viable in anything above like a 100-person community. I was just going to yeah. say it probably has to do with the size of the community. The bigger it is, the less viable voluntary taxation is. If you think about it, it could be a means to manipulate the government too. If the rich people say, you know what, like – I would like lower taxes on my business. I, they could say, you know what, I'm just going to give, I'm going to publicly give, you know, $10 billion to the government this year. And then be like, okay, but, you know, I give this with conditions. Yeah. You, you remember me when you make your laws. Yeah, I guess they could do that. So it, it, it gives the rich more power over government. It's, there's a lot more room for corruption with it. Probably. And I, I do think that. If it's too large a scale, it would never work. No. Now, I have, I have thought about this. Tell me what you think about this idea. You have a tax system where you pay taxes. Let me put it this way. You, you put in X, you get Y. You don't want to put in X, that's okay, but you don't get Y. So you, so, don't, you don't pay for police and they won't show up to your place? Is that what you're saying? That is a very, very simplified version of it, but yes, something like that. Now, obviously, there are big impracticalities in there, but I think with a – a little bit of time and effort and, you know, a pen and paper, I think you could probably work up some way that could be viable. I'm not saying it, it would be, but I'm saying it would be an interesting experiment to try. Then the poor people wouldn't get a lot. Well, you would have to factor that in. So I'm not saying that you have to pay a certain amount in order to get the police, let's say, but you have to give a certain percentage. It would be a very low percentage. So like you can volunteer to opt in to the system. And when you do, you agree to pay a certain amount. Uh, like a percentage, and in exchange, you get certain, uh, I guess you would call it, advantages. But if you don't want to be in the system, that's okay. The system won't try to tax you, but they also may be pretty slow to come to your door. I'm just imagining the libertarians refusing to give a cent to roads. Yeah, really. And they're just not allowed to go on roads. They're stuck on their property, or they can take a helicopter somewhere, you know? <laughs> yeah, that would be... That would be a problem. And so I'm not I'm not saying it's a solution, but I'm saying it's just an interesting thought experiment. Do you think tax avoidance is ever justified? Yes, I think sometimes it's got to be pretty bad, though. Like they they really got to be abusing you. So you think if taxes are too high, that's the reason or if they fund things you don't agree with? If you if they fund things that you don't agree with and they if they fund things that are actively hurting people. Yeah. Uh, citizens. Obviously, you know, a government could go out and commit war crimes or something like that. But if they did something really bad or were really misusing things or there was a lot of corruption, 
then yeah, I think it's justified. It can be. But what about like, you know, only a percentage of the money is going to go to this unjustified thing and the rest will go to things that are justified. It's tough. And something can be morally justified without being legally justified. Obviously, you know, tax avoidance is obviously illegal. But are you morally justified in doing it? Possibly. But it's kind of like the, the vigilante paradox, you know. Obviously, vigilanteism is bad. And if everybody did it, it would be anarchy. However, there need to be vigilantes sometimes as a check on power, on you know, abuses of power and tyranny. However, we cannot support vigilantism totally because then that would open up the door to everybody doing it and it's anarchy so it's like we need them but we cannot but we don't need to support them you know what i'm saying so we need people to protest and avoid taxes but we don't need to support that it's kind of a weird contradiction uh i don't know an oxymoron maybe yeah i i don't think it's ever justified really unless it were like a line item thing like we were talking about and then of course you don't give money to like things you disagree with sure like Oh, you want to give 2% to fund abortions in other countries? No, I, I will not. Okay, do you think having a democracy makes high taxes more justified or more likely? More likely. I definitely think, uh, definitely think it's more likely. As I understand it, uh, taxes were pretty low in like the, in the medieval times or, or like in the period post-Renaissance, kind of in the Enlightenment. And before the modern era, the modern era really has seen a huge increase in the different ways that you can be taxed and the amount of money that can be taken from people. And I, I just feel like the average peasant, uh, even though he had a lower quality of life because of less technology and things like that. So it's kind of an apple and orange thing. But I, in a way, I feel like their burden wasn't so high back then. And so uh, even under a monarchy. I don't think the tax burden was as bad as sometimes you see under a democracy. Yeah, I feel like the consent of the governed thing really ramps up when you have a, a democracy or a republic. Because they're like, oh, we're voting them in, so we, we have more of an obligation to pay for things and more of an obligation to spend money on, yeah. on things that help us. True. So I, I feel like the answer is yes to will they be higher under democracy? More justifiable, I guess, in a way, in that you can theoretically vote out people who have too high, who propose too high taxes. Yeah. yeah. So, what percentage of our incomes would we give to the government if taxation was voluntary, totally voluntary? What would you give? Just the federal government, let's say. Somewhere between ten and twenty percent. If I'm being a good person, I would say way less because I would want them to. I, w I would want them to be forced to scale back and to scale down because they don't have enough, you know, assuming that they would have to spend within their means. Obviously, they could take on debt and that would make this a moot point. But if I could, if I knew that they had to spend within their means, I would give them very little so that they only did the most basic necessities, military and border defense. That would be me. So to the federal government, maybe 5%. And I would probably go up as it got smaller. So to my local government, I might give more. But to them, less. So how, how big do you think the, the federal government would be if it was purely voluntary? Like what percentage of the current budget do you think would be retained? If they had to spend within their means? No, if it was voluntary taxation, like what per percent of the total GDP or of people percent of total incomes on average do you think would be given? Well, that's kind of what I'm getting at. Like if, if 
they could they could just borrow, then it wouldn't matter. But like, let's say if our if the amount of volunteers was directly related to how much they spent, like yeah. how big would it be? Very small, five percent of what it is now. And people would say, "Oh yes, yeah, happy day! I don't have to pay taxes." Yeah, that was my next question. <laughs> what percentage of people do you think would give just absolutely nothing? Oh, dude, even even liberals, you know, like yeah, I don't think it would just be like libertarians burning their tax. Uh, tax forms. Oh, you better believe that the people on the left would not be giving any money to all these programs that they say we need. It, yeah. That's what it always is. It's like, oh, we want to spend all this stuff, but we don't want to spend our money. We yeah. want to spend your money. <laughs> you know, when you go to the ice cream shop and you forgot your neighbor's wallet, you know, that Bernie Sanders meme, that's, that's what it is. <laughs> and so there would be a lot of people on the left who don't give money. And there have been s- studies that show that people on the left tend to not give as much to charities during Christmas. So what percentage of people do you think would give absolutely nothing? Uh, probably 10 percent at least. That might be an under. I was thinking more like half. Yeah, it might be <laughs> half. It might be half. Uh, what about taxation without representation? Would this principle apply to any monarchy without a legislature or only colonists? You know, and that if you had lived, well, let's say you just lived under czarist Russia. OK. You know, there's no for most of it. There's no parliament. Do you think that taxation without representation argument would uh, logically work for them, or it's only because the government is far off and not your own government? What do you think? I think, yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it. The unique circumstances that the colonists were in definitely shaped their the way they wanted to form a new government. So, yeah, I think a faraway power was sort of seen like as this like antagonist who was didn't care about them. He didn't come and visit. He wasn't there with the people, and so he was just like – he was just a faraway tyrant in his ivory tower. And so, of course, they thought, hey, no taxation without representation. You're doing all this stuff over here and leaving us over here, and we're having to bear the consequences, but we don't have a say. And that felt very unfair to them. I think if you have a, a situation like in Tsarist Russia where the government is right down the street, you know, it's right here, you're more tempted to think, well – I still have a say, or mm-hmm. I'm still being represented, even though you're clearly not. What's the future of taxation? Is there a limit? Uh, so we can talk about the Laffer curve. It's been around since. Tell us about that. Been around since at least Reagan. Uh, the story goes that Reagan was in a like a restaurant with some economist Laffer, I guess, and Laffer just got out a napkin and drew the, the, his famous Laffer curve on it to demonstrate to Reagan and it just clicked for him. Oh, wow. So Laffer curve is that the idea that you it, you can increase the tax rate and you will get increased tax revenue in total until you hit a certain percentage. Most economists say that's about 70%. Yeah. And then after you hit 70%, the total tax revenue actually starts going down until you hit 100% when it's probably going to be about zero. Yes. Because if you're taking... If you have a 0% tax rate, you get no taxes. If you have a 100% tax rate, you have no taxes. Exactly. So you have to find that happy medium before people get so upset that they just quit and they just don't pay anymore. Right. So there's also the possibility conservatives like throwing it around, but they'll probably never do it. The the balanced budget amendment, which would require, you know, the tax tax money coming in to equal or exceed the uh, spending. Seems reasonable, but then people always come forward and say, well, what about wartime? What about this? What about that? Yeah. I, I don't think it's going to happen, but I would like to see it happen. Yeah, only if it's – there's one way it works and one way it doesn't. If it's that 
taxation has to match the spending, oh boy, that's not good. We don't want that because then we'll have to increase the taxes in order to match the spending. What we want is the reverse. What we want is a balanced budget amendment that says the uh, spending has to match the revenue. So you set the revenue first. You say, we're only going to take in this amount, 10% from everybody, let's just say. You have to make that money work. Instead of saying, we're going to spend a quadrillion dollars, so fork it over. You know That's not the balanced budget amendment that we need. Is it better for a government to own industries and use the profit from what they pay, uh, I'm sorry, profit from that uh, to pay for its expenditures or the way it is now? What would you say? I think there's some benefit to the state owning industries. And, you know, if you look at Saudi Arabia, it's just like the people hardly pay any taxes because yeah. they just own all the oil. But on the other hand, when the government owns industries, they're going to do it worse than if private industries did it. For sure. Yeah, I think uh, we need to avoid that at all costs. You know, whatever benefits you can look at in certain specific examples, I think the negatives outweigh that. And so state-sponsored industries, I'm not a fan of, definitely not a fan of. But what about the so-called tax choice where you only give to things that you support? Uh, for example, you have to pay 20% of your income, but you get to choose where every dollar goes to. Uh, it might give a lot to the EPA, if that's your thing. You might give a lot to that. Uh, if you're an envi environmentalist, or you give a bunch to the DOD if you love wars, like John McCain. Uh, this would help direct money towards popular programs and cut off unpopular ones, but it would be impossible to plan a budget that way, and essential but non-sexy programs would be underfunded. And that's true. So what do you think of that? Yeah, it's kind of what we did previously about how, what would we give money to. Yeah. I think it's kind of flawed because you can't plan – you know, your your budget around that because you have no clue what's going to come in. You're right. You don't know if you're going to have, you know, $3 trillion to work with or $100 billion. Yeah. So it's really hard to plan it. And what if, it, what if the needs don't match up with what you get? Some would say that that's a way that's kind of almost making the budget a marketable, like a profit or a market-driven thing. Yeah. Where, oh, nobody likes this program, so it doesn't get any money, and that's a way to get rid of bad programs. In a way, yeah, that might work. Maybe. But there's flaws to it. I don't, I don't think it would work practically because there's no way to plan it. Yeah, the planning aspect <laughs> is probably the most complicated part. Yeah, definitely. So there's also the idea of solidarity or federalism. Let's just say this won't happen. But let's just say a libertarian were to become president and they were to run Congress and they radically reduced the size and scope of the federal government. Would the states increase their taxes to make up for lost services or just leave it the way it is and let them go the way of the dodo? And what about the local governments? And also a corollary to that, would people be more willing to pay taxes to their state and local governments than the national government? Possibly. I think if those if those type of programs were important to them, like really important, yes, I think so. I think we would see a lot of programs go the way of the Dota, like you said, but the ones that are the most important to them would just be taken up by the, the state or local governments. Like, for example, the um, uh, it just kind of escaped my mind there, OSHA, okay, federal agency, right? But there are state kind of versions of that uh, for, you know, job site safety. So why can't the states just take over it permanently? Why does the federal government have to be involved? It's one of those things where if you, if you got rid of it at the federal level, it would easily be taken up by the state 
because there's already kind of the infrastructure in place. Same thing with drug enforcement. Local law enforcement could do that. We don't need a DEA. Same thing with the the EPA. There are environmental regulations at every state level. You know, I will say about drugs, if we controlled our border, then I agree with you. But the problem is there, there are a lot of drugs coming in through other countries. So, it, so you, you do don't need a federal agency? In, in that way, I think you do. But you don't need federal agents raiding, you know, like a – a marijuana processing facility in Colorado, you know? Yeah, and you definitely don't need the ATF. That can go away. All right, so what are our takeaways to this discussion? Taxes were much less organized in the past. And also, ju- just about everybody hates paying taxes, but they like the things the government pays for, so it, it really doesn't make any sense. Like, If you support all these programs, you should happily pay your taxes. Yeah. If you like Social Security, you should just... Put a smile on your little face and pay it up. America does not have the highest tax load in the world, contrary to myth, but it is still high from historical standards. Uh, Taxes in the 20th and 21st centuries were the highest they've ever been in history due to prosperity in the first world. America is in a highly unsustainable situation with spending and taxes. That is for sure. And our lingering questions we'll leave you with. If people hate taxes, why do they keep electing people who want high spending? Mm. It's another problem with democracy in that you just – the politicians say what the people want to hear. And what do the people want? High spending and low taxes. Yep, which is impossible. It's – without debt, it's impossible. I want a huge plate of food and I don't want to pay for it, (laughs) you know? Because the you know all the even Republicans are like yeah no we're we're not going to cut Social Security that's that's an entitlement that's what they're called yeah uh, so you know but we're also going to give the rich a tax break okay then how are you going to pay yeah. for it yeah <laughs> exactly so why do conservatives push for tax cuts when the federal deficit is already high will they have the courage to cut beloved programs too no yeah that's easy. Uh, <laughs> So I have three options for you, and which one do you think is the least bad option? All right, let's hear them. The first one, low taxes, low spending, no debt. I know which one you're going to pick, but this is for the audience. And sure, myself. sure. The second option, high spending, low taxes, high debt, our current situation. Three, high spending, high taxes, and no debt. Yeah, I think there are very few people who would choose anything but the first. Um, but some people might pick the third because they might say high taxes that's fine for everyone except me (laughs) and that just doesn't fly with me i'm going to pick number one but the audience may pick something different now what will happen with the national debt currently 28.5 trillion dollars will we pay it off default on our debt or be enslaved by the chinese it's not too crazy to imagine stranger things have happened in history I don't think that's going to be the last one, uh, unless we just keep putting it off until we're so weak that that could happen. Yeah. Now, I would be a dangerous president, but <laughs> <laughs> well, we we already knew that. But yeah. why specifically now? Well, I have a plan. Okay. That you you push through a balanced budget amendment and default on the debt and make sure your military is buffed up. <laughs> That's the ultimate Chad solution right there. I mean, there. yeah, but you're going to crash the world economy for sure. But, like, every country has a ton of debt. Yeah, exactly. You know, this is just a little anecdote to add on top. Sure. I remember when we were in middle school and Obama was starting to be president. Mm-hmm. 
and and I remember seeing learning for the first time, man, the the federal debt seven trillion. What? Oh no! <laughs> I remember thinking seven trillion. That is so much. I can't believe it's so high. That's so irresponsible. Look what George W. Bush did. Obama's about to make it higher. I can't believe this. Yes. How did we get from seven trillion in the late two thousands to tw- almost thirty trillion? And now? We're, we're not even old. We're not even talking about like a lifetime here. We have quadrupled the debt in like what ten years? Like twelve years. Yeah. Twelve years. Uh, to an astounding, it was already an astounding number, and now it's just ungodly. I'm not. I'm not blaming any one president because Reagan is the one who really started all this. If we're being fair, he's the one who started bad debt. Yeah. And it's been added to by every president. Probably Bill, Bill Clinton's done the best since Reagan to not do that. Yeah, actually, I hate to give the man credit, but he did have a – didn't he have a um, a surplus in one year? I think. Yeah. The economy was pretty good under him. But, you yeah. know, since the Iraq War and then Obama came in with the Great Recession and yes. Trump didn't help anything. Nope. Neither will the next guy. Biden's not helping a thing either. He's making it way worse, make, putting everyone on welfare. I don't I don't know how it's going to end. Yep. Probably not well. But no. that's okay. We will persist and uh, try to, you know, go out west. And uh, what is it we always talk about? Do the... The commune? Yeah, the, the Benedict option. Oh, Benedict option. Yep, that's always an option. That's all for today's show. Try not to cry tonight. Join us again next week for even more ancient wisdom.